welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 106, Kara George. No new patrons since I last recorded. Uh, the last episode was just a few days ago. But a few things to mention. First, in a slightly embarrassing oversight, I neglected to mention that the Holy Roman Empire formally ceased to exist back in 1806. I regret the error. But, you know, I mean, already the Holy Roman Empire was, was largely kind of dominated by the Austrian Habsburgs. And while they're not completely synonymous and we haven't really talked about it in a while, I thought it was important to mention that it's not around anymore. But I'll also mention, in case you haven't picked up on it, this is the first episode of Season 6. So, very excited to start Season 6, which is entitled uh, Bulgarian Revival. And obviously this is going to be covering the 19th century, about 1807 to 1878, to the foundation of a semi-independent Bulgarian state in 1878. So, this season obviously is going to be a bit different than the previous ones. It's covering a much shorter period of time. But because there's a lot of kind of biographies uh, in here, I'm going to have to kind of figure out how to do it. It's it's still not set in stone, but uh, I'm going to probably be doing some episodes that are more chronological, but interspersing maybe some biographic uh, content. We're going to figure it out as we go. And if anyone has any tips, ideas, suggestions, feel free to reach out. All right, now let's get into it. Last time at the end of season five, we left off with the Napoleonic Wars still causing rapid change to the geopolitical situation of Europe. The Treaty of Tilsit had just been signed after another massive French victory against Russia and Prussia. Russia was subsequently forced to ally with France against Great Britain, just as the leaders of the Serbian Rebellion had allied themselves with Russia. Now, if you got all that. So, because France and the Ottomans were allies, Russia and the Ottomans soon signed an armistice. This took pressure off the Ottomans following their poor performance in the war, but it also put the Serbs in an odd situation. They had rejected an Ottoman offer of autonomy and allied themselves with Russia, hoping to fight the Ottomans alongside the Russians and gain full independence. Now that this wasn't going to happen, the future of the Serbian uprising was highly uncertain. Now, within the Ottoman Empire, the reform-minded Sultan Selim III had just been deposed by a revolt in May of 1807 and replaced by Mustafa IV. The Janissaries took this moment to take out their revenge on anyone who had opposed them and had favored reform. However, supporters of Selim survived these purges, or at least many of them did. In particular, the governor of Ruse, Mustafa Bayraktar, although now, Bayraktar was, well, had been a Janissary in the past. I guess he still kind of was. It's not really a title you give up. But at this point, he had moved beyond his Janissary loyalties and saw the need for a modern Ottoman army and therefore supported the deposed Selim. In June of 1808, almost exactly one year from Selim's original ouster, Bayraktar gathered an army and marched on Constantinople. But before he could get there, Mustafa had Selim killed. Now, despite this setback, Bayraktar continued on marching. 
Instead of Selim, the former sultan's cousin and Mustafa's only brother, Mahmoud, was chosen to be the standard bearer of the pro-reform movement. He had been imprisoned with Selim and shared his reformist ideals. So, with that, the army entered the palace, arrested Mustafa, and placed Mahmoud on the throne. Now, Mahmoud took power just days after his 23rd birthday, but for the early period of his reign, Bayraktar was the real force behind the throne. He immediately set about purging opponents of reform, which, considering the proponents of reform had just been purged by his brother the year before, must have really hollowed out a lot of government and military offices. I mean, you have back-to-back opposing purges, uh, you're going to have some problems. Essentially, it was the Janissaries and provincial nobles who had stopped all previous reforms. But fortunately, Bayraktar was himself both of those things, and so he had some kind of cachet within those communities. With this in mind, he invited provincial nobles from around the empire to Constantinople to make the case before them for reform. After much discussion, a document was signed by them agreeing in principle to these reforms in October of 1808. Now, I'll quote the historian Shaw to describe the contents of this document. Quote, The notables and provincial governors signed the document confirming their loyalties to the sultan and promised to recognize the Grand Vizier as his absolute representative, Articles 1 and 4. The Ottoman tax system was to be applied in full throughout the empire, in all provinces, without any diversion of revenues rightfully belonging to the sultan, Article 3. And, in return, the sultan promises to levy taxes justly and fairly, Article 7. Because the empire's survival depends on the strength of the army, the notables promised to cooperate in the recruitment of men in their provinces. The new army was to be organized in accordance with the system presented during the discussion, Article 2, of which no exact details were indicated. The notables were to rule justly in their own territories, Article 5, and they promised to respect each other's territory and autonomy, to act separately and collectively as guarantors of each other's fulfillment of the promises, and to support the central government against any opposition to its reforms, marching to Istanbul whenever they hear of any uprising, without even wasting time to secure the sultan's permission, Article 6. The agreement thus included no specific program of military reform, but the entire drift of the discussion and the provisions indicated that Selim's Nizim Chidit, the new model army, would be restored with the full support of those present. Some sources indicate that Bayraktar Mustafa also proposed reforms for the older military corps, including an end to irregularities in appointments, requirements for unmarried members to live in the barracks, and for all members to accept discipline and training in order to receive their salaries, and even the use of European-style weapons. But such plans did not appear in the document itself. Some writers refer to the document as the Magna Carta of the Ottomans, an agreement between the ruler and his notables that could serve as a written constitution. The attempts to delimit the powers of the sultan with respect to taxes and to establish a reciprocity of responsibilities and obligations, as well as to make a distinction between the government and the sultan, were indeed steps towards constitutionalism. But the sultan, not wishing to limit his own sovereign power, avoided signing it, 
resenting in particular its confirmation of the rights and privileges of the provincial notables and promises that he would govern justly. And, in the end, only four notables signed. The remainder returned to their homes during the conference once they saw that they would have to limit their own independence by promising to help the government, to rule justly, and to keep each other in line. Also, unlike the Magna Carta, the document of agreement was not subsequently used to further the cause of constitutionalism in the Ottoman Empire. Thus, it had only limited effect and significance. End quote. Okay, so that was a very, very long quote, but I thought it did a good job of really explaining both what was in the document and, well, why it kind of went nowhere. It's remarkable to think that this document really could have served as the basis for uh, a tremendous kind of constitutional reform within the Ottoman Empire. But, you know, it's, it's a similar story to what we've seen so far that no one wants to give up anything. You know, it's, it's a bit surprising to me, actually, that uh, Sultan Mustafa was not willing to give any power to those regional notables in an official document, considering he had so little control over them anyways. I mean, we've seen with the, you know, a lot of these notables who began running their almost micro states within the Ottoman Empire and cases where the central government of the Ottomans had almost no control over what these people did. And, you know, this document would at least give them some amount of control would create some kind of, you know, limits and, and uh, kind of shared base of understanding for how the relationship would go. And in an ideal world, this could have had a tremendous impact on Bulgaria, a part of the empire that was in particular facing very, very harsh treatment by these local notables who were abusing local populations. So in other words, it's a really missed opportunity. It's something that could have had a tremendous impact on Bulgarians and people throughout the Ottoman Empire. But ultimately, it just showed that no one was willing to compromise enough to move the empire forward. So, despite the total lack of success from this effort, Bayraktar immediately set about reviving the new model army. You know, he wasn't going to let this get him down. He wasn't going to let the lack of success here stop him from making these reforms because he knew, the Sultan knew, a lot of, I guess anyone paying attention knew that without reforming, the Ottoman Empire was doomed. At this point, it was probably pretty clear that the thing keeping the Ottoman Empire alive, the thing keeping the empire functioning was the fact that it was in the kind of geopolitical self-interest of many European states to keep the Ottoman Empire around. So there you go. So the new model army is going to be revived by Bayraktar, but he's doing this in a bit of a clever way because, well, remember the new model army was not very popular. It had a lot of enemies. So he changed the name and instead actually attached this new force to the Janissaries, hoping that this would prevent them from opposing it. And the department that was in charge of funding this new model army was instead called the Ministry for Affairs of the Holy War to appease the religious conservatives, who also were concerned for, about the Ottoman Empire kind of adopting European practices, whether those were you know, broadly cultural, or even some military practices. They didn't want the Ottoman Empire to become another European power. And so, you know, Bayraktar had to really cleverly finesse this new uh, new kind of department, this, this new army, so that it wouldn't be opposed by all these folks. Soon, this new force had about 10,000 men within it, which is a pretty decent nucleus for a new army. The navy was also reformed, and some adjustments were made to the Janissaries, although the sultan held back on making more substantial reforms to the Janissaries because, well, he was afraid of them, and as we know, for good reason. 
most of the people who, you know, Bioractor was trying to kind of fool with these workarounds saw straight through them and began to resent Bayraktar and the men he represented for their arrogance and thinking that they could be fooled like that. Opposition quickly grew, but the opponents of Bayraktar and his reforms knew they didn't stand a chance against him in Constantinople proper. And so they began by inciting the notables of Bulgaria to attack Bayraktar's home base in Ruse. Bayraktar sent some forces there, resulting in a diminishment of his power within the capital. The Janissaries then took this moment to rebel, quickly storming the palace. Bayraktar and some of his men hid in a gunpower storage place, which then blew up and killed him. Now, once again, reactionary rebels were in control. They made demands of the Sultan, who actually refused them, having seen that giving in to such demands didn't really work in the past, and so I guess he figured, why not just say no? The Janissaries were attacked, but they held back, and they held their own. Now, at this moment, Sultan Mustafa, who was kind of in retirement, was killed on Mahmud's orders in order to ensure that there would be no other candidate that the Janissaries could install on the throne, which really makes sense. I mean, you imagine Mahmud is going to have a lot more kind of power in negotiations if he's the only option they have to rule. Now, this, I believe, was the last actual case of Ottoman imperial fratricide, uh, a policy you'll remember that was kind of at the core of the early Ottoman period, but now has really gone by the wayside. But still, killing Mustafa did not end the conflict. Far from it. The palace was soon encircled by Janissaries and the water supply was cut off. Warships then began to bombard the Janissary barracks and their forces surrounding the palace, creating fires that destroyed much of the city center in Constantinople. Seeing no other way out, the Janissaries ultimately decided to cut a deal, agreeing to support the Sultan in exchange for amnesty. Now, what's kind of amazing is that all of this, from Bayraktar and his new army marching from Musay to Constantinople, to his death and all the fighting in the capital, all this took place in about four months. So things are moving very, very quickly in Constantinople. Now, ultimately, while reform was held back, this was something of a victory for the Sultan. He remained on the throne and had learned valuable lessons about how to defeat the Janissaries and the broader reactionary forces within the empire. Now, this is a reminder of just how those conservative forces had always functioned. As historian Donald Quaytard put it, quote, Within the empire, as we have seen, many provincial notables during the 18th century had practiced substantial degrees of autonomy while acknowledging the fundamental legitimacy of the Ottomans' enterprise and their state. Seldom, if ever, had the rebels sought to break out or destroy the Ottoman Imperium. There had been revolts, but generally these had worked within the system, claiming as their goal the rectification of the problems within the Ottoman universe, such as the reduction of taxes, or better justice, end quote. So you get the feel there that despite all the things happening, all the chaos, all the, you know, rebellions and things, one of the interesting kind of aspects of all of these is that they are still functioning within the Ottoman system. And, you know, remember even that Vedan microstate, even those kind of uh, microstates that pop up that, you know, in that case, the Ottomans sent 100,000 soldiers to put that down But even those folks aren't saying, no, we reject the Ottoman Empire. They're just saying, we're within the Ottoman Empire. We think the Ottomans are perfectly legitimate, but we're going to do our own thing. 
Okay, so we've kind of gone over all of these, uh, all this back and forth in Constantinople. But what about Russia, the Serbian uprising, Napoleon? What else is happening? Now, first, in the early days of 1809, the Treaty of the Dardanelles was signed between Britain and the Ottomans. It ended the brief Anglo-Turkish War and committed the British to protecting the territorial integrity of the empire. Again, the alliances are pretty confusing here because the Ottomans had been French allies and now they sign this deal where the British are going to protect their territorial integrity. It's all over the place. And honestly, explaining the shifting alliances of Europe during the Napoleonic Wars would take a bit too much time and is kind of out of our scope. So what really matters here is just who is fighting who at what time. So if it doesn't make sense, you can look it up yourself and try to, you know, there's plenty of channels and things covering the uh, Napoleonic Wars. So you can look into it yourself if you're more curious. So you'll recall that an armistice had been signed between the Ottomans and Russia, but the Russians had actually used the period of the armistice to move more troops to the Ottoman frontier, obviously assuming the armistice was going to end. And, well, they were right about that. And when the Russian war resumed, around the same time that Bayraktar's army was marching on Constantinople from Rusay, well, they were ready. But fortunately for the Ottomans, the Russians still made very little progress during that first year. So while all that chaos, all the back and forth is going on in Constantinople, the Russians were attacking, but not making many gains. So definitely lucky for the Ottomans. Now, the Serbs had kept fighting during this time as well, although there were no kind of defining battles. But by May of 1809, the Ottomans did secure a major victory at the Battle of Chegar, before deciding to use the skulls of the slain Serbs to construct the famous skull tower of Nish, which still exists in Nish, and if you ever want to see it, it's a tower containing nearly a thousand human skulls. So, that's dark. But overall, the Serbs were making some gains, but they had failed to secure an outlet to the Adriatic Sea, which would have provide the, provided them with access to supplies. And around this time, Kara George, their leader, issued a proclamation in Belgrade, which called for national unity and effectively declared himself king of Serbia. Now, by late summer of 1809, the Ottomans had a massive counterattack ready and an army was marching towards Belgrade. Now, at the same time, the Russians conquered Dobruja and began to get some supplies to their Serbian allies. They kind of reestablished that contact. The Russians even laid siege to Silistra and actually took the city. But the same Ottoman counterattack that was heading to Belgrade also sent an army their way, and the Russians decided to retreat back across the Danube. But not before their presence triggered a Bulgarian uprising around Razgrad, which you know, say it with me, was quickly and brutally crushed. It's a sad thing. I mean, these are, these are real human suffering and things, but it's basically the story of every single Bulgarian uprising. Still, the Russian actions did disrupt the Ottoman attack on Belgrade, and that allowed the Serbs to continue fighting on. But this moment still marked an, a kind of end of the first phase of the Serbian uprising. The Serbs at this point were now on the defensive as infighting began to ravage their ranks. The Serbs felt the Russians weren't doing enough and actually sought an alliance with France, but Napoleon wasn't interested. In Bulgaria, late 1809 saw an order from the Grand Vizier to the Qadi, a Qadi is a kind of Ottoman judge, 
of Dupnica not to make any repairs or additions to the Rila monastery. Now, around this time, Bulgarians in Bucharest were actually creating an organization to fight for Bulgaria's independence, an organization which will gradually grow and evolve and become a vital part of future Bulgarian revolutionary activity. So some things are happening in Bulgaria, not nothing massive, but you know, news is happening. We're going to have more information like this as we go through this season, finally, right? Now, back in the Ottoman Empire, with the loss of his new, more modern army, Sultan Mahmud made some attempts to reform the Janissaries themselves, finally. Now, at this point, there were 110,000 Janissaries, while for reference, 20 years previously, there had been only 12,000. The order had actually signed up new members, the Janissaries that is, in a bid to increase their power and to protect itself. It's no surprise that efforts at reform here therefore made very little progress. As Shaw put it, quote, The Janissaries remained, at best, an undisciplined, ill-trained, and poorly armed mob, far better able to act in defense of the old order than to compete with the new armies of Europe, end quote. I think that sums it up pretty well. Still, the Sultan did have some successes reforming the better-equipped artillery corps, but that was hardly enough to make a big overall difference. Now, in Egypt, on the other hand, reforms were moving along very nicely. Muhammad Ali there was governing a largely independent Egypt with barely any remnants of the old ruling class which had so plagued Mahmud. So, what remained of the Mamluks in particular there, were massacred in 811, which really cleared the way for Muhammad Ali to implement all the reforms that, well, you can see the the sultan in Constantinople really wishes he could be implementing. At that same time, Ali was faced with the challenge of eliminating the growing Saudi state and the Wahhabi religious movement it represented. Ali had actually been ordered to do this back in 1807, but was too focused on internal power struggles in Egypt. Now, in 1811, his Albanian and Bosnian soldiers began a proper war against the Saudis, retaking Mecca and Medina in the subsequent two years. But the war would drag on for many years longer, as Ali continued to implement, again, the kinds of reforms that the Sultan in Constantinople wished he could. Now, I'll quickly mention this because we don't have a very specific date for it, but I wanted to say at this point that in the early 19th century, the Ottoman state was also transitioning a little bit, from relying on those local notables for military recruits to more direct conscription. And this conscription would usually last about 20 years between active and reserve status, not full 20 years active military, but this is one of these reforms that's going on right about now. Now, speaking of military units, in 1811, a unit of Bulgarian volunteers numbering some two to two and a half thousand was actually formed within the Russian army. Also, early that year, the Russian general who had been in charge of their military operations against the Ottomans died, forcing the Tsar to give command to the experienced commander, Kutuzov. Kutuzov was cautious and decided to begin by evacuating his troops from Silistra to draw the Ottomans in. He had 46,000 exhausted but battle-hardened soldiers to meet the 60,000 Ottomans gathering at the fortress of Schumann. In June, the two armies met near Ruse, and the superior quality of the Russian infantry and artillery brought victory. However, Kutuzov then retreated across the Danube, leading the Ottomans to believe that they had actually won. The Tsar was furious about this, but Kutuzov had a plan. 
A few months later, the Ottomans crossed the Danube into Bessarabia, so not at like Ruse, but farther north, and, well, they were ready to build on their victory. The Ottomans were eager. About 50,000 Ottomans secured the east bank, while another 20,000 remained on the west bank to guard supplies. A Russian cavalry force crossed the river and easily defeated those 20,000 on the far bank. The remaining Ottoman force was surrounded by the Russians and cut off from supplies. Now, the Grand Vizier escaped, but the remaining soldiers were now a bargaining chip in the peace negotiations. These negotiations finally led to the Treaty of Bucharest in July of 1812. The Russian Empire annexed Bessarabia, essentially the portion of Moldavia between the Prut and Dniester rivers. And, well, you can think of it this way, that this is essentially the time when the territory was divided the way it is now. In other words, the part that Russia annexed is now the country of Moldova, and the remaining portion is now the Romanian region of Moldavia. So that's one of the sources of that difference, why uh, what was the kind of territory of Moldavia, Moldova, is now divided between a separate country and part of Romania. Now in the Caucasus, the Ottomans renounced their claims to western Georgia, though they maintained some territories in the area. But the big shock of this agreement was for the Serbs. They had been successfully fighting the Ottomans for six years now, and as we know, had allied themselves with the Russians in hopes of gaining independence from the war. But the reality of Napoleon's threat to Russia, you know, once again, Russia really had to end the war because of Napoleon, was such that Russia felt it couldn't afford to push for Serbian independence. They had to end the war sooner. So, in the agreement, Serbia was given autonomy within the Ottoman Empire, something that they had rejected before. Amnesty would be given to many who participated in the uprising, and Serbs would be allowed to largely administer their own affairs. However, they would have to pay annual tribute to the Ottomans. In addition, Serbian fortifications would have to be destroyed and Ottoman ones reoccupied. In other words, the terms were entirely unacceptable to the Serbian leadership, particularly to Kara George, who was increasingly running things alone. Although the Russians encouraged him to negotiate, it was clear that there was little to prevent Ottoman reprisals, and Karadjorj would never likely be given amnesty himself, and so the Serbs elected to fight on. However, 13 days after the signing of the Treaty of Bucharest, Napoleon invaded Russia. So, not only was the Russian War of the Ottomans over, but Russia was not exactly in a position to provide any further support to the Serbs. This meant that the Ottoman army could now focus all of its efforts on crushing the Serbian uprising. And that's exactly what happened. The year after the peace, 1813, the Ottoman army moved into Serbia, reconquered Belgrade, and forced Kara George and his retinue to flee across the border into Austrian territory. And with that, the first Serbian uprising was crushed. The reprisals were horrific, with accounts of men being killed en masse, women and children being sold into slavery, and general brutality enacted upon the population. However, there was a general amnesty afterwards, with Kara George and some others excluded, no surprise there. And this did lead to some Serbs returning from Austrian exile. But Kara George and his followers would still need to bide their time. Now, what we can't say is that this is a definitive end to things, because in the, over the course of the winter of 1812, Napoleon lost around half a million soldiers in his disastrous invasion of Russia. So, what this means for Russia 
for the Serbs, for the Ottomans, and ultimately for Bulgarians, remains to be seen. For now, the Napoleonic Wars rage on, and next time, we'll see them finally conclude and we'll determine just what kind of Europe is going to rise from the ashes. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, you can check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast and all kinds of other information accompanying each episode at bghistorypodcast.com or with the link in the description. Catch you guys in the next one.